This is Report to Wyoming. The show targets local issues that matter right here in Natrona County, where I talk to real people about their thoughts and ideas. Janelle Maloney calls in for this episode to discuss her new book titled Emigrant Trails of the Platte River Raids. She has three previous books published along with short stories, anthologies, and many, many magazine publications. She's working on a couple fictions right now. It was a delight talking to her about her newest book, which features accounts from survivors of the 1864 attacks on the Oregon and Overland Trails through Wyoming by the Northern Plains Indians. I kick things off by asking her when she started writing. I got started writing in college. I actually attended Arizona State University, and I studied theater. And when I was studying theater, I really got into the character studies and who these people were and why they were motivated to do what they wanted to do. And I believe that really carried over into my writing as I transitioned into becoming a local journalist where I am. And I started writing personal interest pieces and doing the same kind of treatment on the people that I was writing about and discovering who they are, why they do what they do, and why it is important that they have accomplished whatever it is, opening a new business or um, whatever achievement they have. So that actually carried over into becoming a blogger and then an author on my own. I have four published books right now, all nonfiction, all award-winning, and one of the things that I enjoyed in the process of researching immigrants on the Oregon Trail was not just watching them pass by. They're not just these, I don't know what the word is, is it ephemeral, just come and go and then disappear into the night. But I really dug into who they were before. Why did they want to make this cross-country journey, or why must they, rather? And what happened afterward, even? I mean, the middle part is really exciting, and but I didn't want to leave that ending part out and finding out what happened to these individuals, how their experience shaped them and morphed them into the either notorious pioneers that they became or the well-esteemed pioneers that they became. So I really enjoyed that character research, and this was just the perfect Petri dish for me to do it in because these pioneers left such a huge impression on wherever they settled, and so tracing them back was very pleasurable for me. So that's where I come from in my writing. I have been a poet. I've been a songwriter, a scriptwriter, and journalist, and now I just really enjoy getting into the family histories and nonfiction, and the majority of my writing has at least one of my personal ancestors because I find that we have, we, the collective we, all have incredible stories right within our own family tree and through our own DNA. We're making connections to relatable, impressive, incredible adventures that are in our past. Or, as some people are getting into now or becoming more familiar with, there's generational trauma. And when we go back in time, we can start to identify who was in severe situations and how they coped and how that has now morphed 
or translated down through generations into who we are and why we do what we do. So I find all of this very fascinating, and I present very well-rounded characters in my books because I don't skimp on who the characters really are. Now, did you have to take creative liberties to kind of give characters their roundness, or were you able to find enough archives, oral histories, and that sort of thing, so that it's, you know, completely fact? I didn't have to make up anything. And that, that to me, is the most surprising part of the stories that I've been writing, is that the details are so incredible, they are unbelievable. They're so unbelievable but then when you consider that they're actually true it just makes it you know that much more shocking there was one character though i had trouble with and he is um his name is mr shoemaker and he actually came from nebraska for sure and i have trapped down the family the living descendants great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren and this man was a loner, a drifter. He was the hmm, weird uncle, if you will, who divorced and sort of was doing his own thing. So he was the only person that I had to really lean into the tales of his descendants and relatives who would give me anecdotal information that I could use to round out his story. Um, But everyone else, there was so much information already published, or their family members had written down family histories or kept journals or letters or postcards, and a lot of them actually sent me the material. They would scan in photo albums and scan over copies of diaries to me, and that was just an incredible contribution. Um, But no, there's, there's a wealth out there. It just requires, I think, going the extra step that not everything is on the Internet. Not everything is in an archive, especially when we're talking about family histories. A lot of people keep family histories within the family. They don't all get donated to the local historical society. So I did, I felt a little creepy doing this, but I did track down the living descendants of the immigrants that survived um, through genealogy databases and web programs and I asked their permission to start a conversation and by reaching out and inviting them to collaborate with me we were able to provide an exquisite mosaic of these characters and in return they got to see that their person who's just great great granny was more than that, they got to put their family history in context and see the ripple effects of this migration on almost the entire southern half of Wyoming and how it sent shockwaves through the nation. And so it was a very mutually satisfying experience to not only do my own research, but to openly share all of my sources, all of my notes with the relatives, so that way they were personally enriched by this experience in return. What draws you to the American West? I don't know if I have a much better answer than anyone else. 
It's fascinating. It's dangerous. It's deadly. And it just has this magical folklore to it. But as much as I want to embellish and go into that grandiose, you know, cactus and tumbleweeds atmosphere in my, in my work, it, it is more um, enjoyable to me to see that it just really is fascinating just the way it is. The prairie grasses swishing like ocean waves. That's not made up. That's not grandiose. That's real. And I can imagine closing my eyes and hearing the wagon reels grinding in the trail grit. And I can imagine those swishing prairie grasses. And I can imagine wolves howling in the Medicine Bow Forest. I can hear that. And I, I realize that's not so far removed. That is not fiction. That's not grandiose. It's so real. And so Wyoming became particularly interesting to me because of the natural landscapes and the stories that emerge from the travelers there, the military history there, and the pound of their footsteps in the dirt, and the Pony Express. It, it really is everything. It's the epitome of the Wild West movement through America's history. Now, I do want to get more into the book, but before we move on from this, I'm just curious, what do you think the legacy of Wyoming is? I think the legacy that still continues to be the loudest for me is grit. Those who crossed the Missouri, those who chose to settle in unincorporated wilderness, and start their own government, start their own town, start venturing off into trails that have never been carved before, that requires such grit that that's the legacy. That's something that we're missing today. That's something that I think my generation, and especially the generations to come, don't quite get. There's, I mean, there's no opportunity to get that anymore. There's no new, there's no untouched anymore. And so that grit is what is so powerful about Wyoming's territorial past. Yeah. And when I think about like grit, I think toughness and a lot of these people's stories involve so much hardship um, losing children at all ages, losing loved ones, hunger, the unknown, like you're saying. How has studying those things informed you in your own life? You know, it's actually made a lot of mental health issues more relatable. And I think that element has been passed over in a lot of prior literature, especially on historical subjects, where mental health issues now are quite spoken about and very, everyone is quite open about what they're dealing with and medication comes quite freely these days. And, but back then there, there's no, there's no information. There's no good way to say these folks experienced PTSD or anxiety from their experiences. But because I was able to do that 
360-degree view of who these people are and go into their future, I actually really enjoyed seeing how mental health issues emerged and getting to a place of compassion for these individuals who, yes, they survived, but they were scarred in the process. And some of them went on to become highly successful farmers and lawyers and whatnot, but some of them didn't. Some actually, once they got to their destination, had major mental health breakdowns and ended up in what they called insane asylums back then. And I was rather surprised that it wasn't a handful. It was more than a handful where they just could not overcome those overwhelming overwhelming feelings. And unfortunately, we did not have the resources that we do today. So the asylums were the best place for them to recover or for some of them to stay permanently after being through such traumatic experiences. So that was something I um, particularly leaned into just to show that this stuff has been going on a really long time. It's not foreign, um, but I think that I'm breaking some new ground by going back in time and acknowledging the mental strain on the immigrants. How long did you take before you were ready to put pen to paper or nowadays start typing? Well, I've been looking into this subject for about seven years. I started really truly with about four or five families that one of them is actually my third great-grandparents. And so I was really sort of circling around just them. And over time, I started to pull on various threads. For example, someone would be mentioned um, as the New York train in one of the trail diaries. And I thought, hey, what are the chances I could find out who the New York train is, who's at the same place and time? And so I take a detour and I find them. And so it grew to almost 70 accounts that I had in a pile. And then I thought, you know, this is pretty cool. I was just going to write a story about my own family, but I thought, you know, this is a big deal. I should probably write something about how they're all interconnected. And I thought, you know, this will probably take three to six months. It's maybe not that big of a deal. But as soon as I started putting together this Platte River raid story and started infusing military reports and oral histories from Plains Indians, I started to see the significance of what I was looking at. And so it ended up taking me a year and a half of just the writing. So seven years of research plus a year and a half of the writing and the revisions and taking extra time to send manuscripts, early manuscripts, you know, things you don't want anyone to see. But I sent them out to those living descendants. And I really invited them to not only contribute, but to correct any of the narrative that maybe did not put their family in a good light or maybe was a little off or maybe they could embellish with other resources. And so the collaboration, in my opinion, slowed everything down, but it was worth every second. 
because now every single family member is proud of this work and they're all acknowledged in the book as being contributors or advisors. And I really feel like it was worth it. So guess we're looking at eight and a half years for one book. <laughs> That's a long time. So where does this book take place, the setting? The book is centralized between Fort Laramie and Deer Creek Garrison in present-day Glen Rock, Wyoming. So all in the Converse and Platte County. But there is a little bit of a lead-up into it, so that way readers can see the attitudes of the immigrants as they're coming in to what was called the Black Hills of Idaho at that time, because in 1864, Wyoming was not Wyoming. It was still part of Idaho territory, and so they were crossing the boundaries into Idaho. And the Black Hills got their names because of the dark, shadowy um, conifers that are on the mountains. But nowadays, we recognize the Black Hills in South Dakota. But back then, it was that entire area. So the lead-up shows you how some of the immigrants are completely oblivious to any kind of danger. They're having a good time. They're at peace. They have good relations with the local um, Northern Plains Indians that are in the area. Some of them have previous experiences that make them quite jaded or resistant or fearful. And so they're going into this three-day period or it's kind of residually last two weeks. They're going into this very um, agitated and tense. And then you get to look at the state of the Union Army who is based um, at Fort Laramie in, I think it was called the Nebraska Territory at that time, or the Nebraska Unit, and, um, and how they felt out in the plains, and how they were just incredibly casual about everything they did. They were considered inebriates. A lot of them were recent transfers from a Confederate um, battle where they were given an opportunity to either become prisoners of war or become turncoats and go out to Fort Laramie. So a lot of them had no buy-in and they could care less what happened to anyone at any time. And so you'll get a sense for what people are walking into and do they have protection? Do they feel safe? Is anyone doing their job? And then once we get into those faded black hills, we see the world kind of crumble and everything, everyone's being ambushed. Everyone's looking over their shoulder. And I mean, that's the juicy stuff I'm sure we'll get to. Um, but you really get a sense for when these immigrants left the immediate vicinity of Fort Laramie, they had no one watching their back except for people with ill will. There was no protection. There was no calling for help. They were completely on their own to live or die in these three-day attacks that came down on them. So you do get a sense as there's that buildup of, oh, boy, we've got to figure this out on our own. And if we don't, this is it. And we're not talking about soldiers. We're talking about farmers, moms, 12-year-old boys. We're talking about non-soldiers, civilians, 
who are going to fight for their lives with whatever they have. Would this have been a single company? What do you mean by company? Um, Yeah, and maybe you could help me out if that's not the right word, but the immigrants traveling together, how many people are we talking about? Oh, well, 1864 was one of the highest populated years for travelers, and there is an actual record of how many people had traveled through the area prior to this event, and it totaled to about 10,000. I think the last count that was noted was around July 9th. So about 10,000 people had gone through already, and this is motivated by there's a new gold uh, boom in um, Montana at that point. There's a new silver mine open in Idaho and, of course, California booming. Um, so there's a lot going on. So this is a really heavy year for traffic besides the Civil War and all the folks that are trying to get out of either being conscripted or drafted or just getting out of their war-torn neighborhood where, you know, their front yards are being abused by soldiers and their cattle and their chickens are being eaten by soldiers and they have nothing left. They're being depleted of resources. So it was a really heavy travel season. Okay. But there, there's not a real sense of unity or a conglomerate that we're going to follow in the book. I do define every single smaller company. Some are as large as 80 people. Some are as small as just one dude and a horse. And so we see how they interact. Sometimes they bond together and they stay together for a few days. And sometimes they just are passing and they say, hey, and see you next time I'm at camp. And there's not really a connection, but they're familiar faces. A lot of them have been traveling, not necessarily together, but in tandem for several weeks because of crossing uh, the Missouri over from Council Bluffs, Iowa to Omaha, Nebraska. There's a huge delay there, and they all kind of launch in the same time frame. So there's a lot of communal attitudes. There's a lot of familiarity and friendliness, um, but they don't all end up together. There is one group, though, the Morris family and the Hastings family, both from Iowa, who are not necessarily neighbors. They're in the same general area of Iowa. But along the way, they both are attacked together. They become, I don't know if you can call it trauma bonded, but yeah, I guess, and continue traveling together to Oregon and then their children end up marrying each other, and they, they become neighbors in Oregon, and they become one big family because of this experience. So I do see those as well, and um, each unit, whether they evolve or merge or split, is tracked sort of on their own little narrative through the book. So it's really easy for readers to follow along because they're grouped. Now, can we sympathize in this book with the Northern Plain Indians? And how do you reconcile with the violence that could be perceived as cruelty? I am so glad you asked that question. I think it's a really important point to be made is that there is sympathy to be given. There's compassion to be given. And yes, there absolutely will be 
a confrontation that readers must make because they're going to see the bird's eye view. You know, it's easy to get lost in just one trail diary and hear from this one person who calls the Native Americans or the indigenous people various slurs. And they say, oh, yeah, they attacked their dad. But when you see the bird's eye view of how there were mistreatments after mistreatments and abuses of treaties and rules, the government would change the rules without communicating them properly, without having agreement. And so the Plains Indians in this book are very deeply betrayed, personally betrayed. And so what they do, in my opinion, is a matter of restitution, which is part of their culture. If you um, happen to kill one of my horses, cool, give me one of your horses and I'll kill it and we're good. And truly, truly, we're good. Um, Fair is fair. So I believe that was a huge motivating factor. And I think readers will see that and they'll see that it was very important for them to make sure that this debt was paid. However, for the immigrants that are going through, they're completely innocent and unaware of the debt that is owed. And they are the ones that end up having to pay the price, which is unfair. Mm. Ultimately, though, there are, I was very fortunate to find it, there's an oral history from a chief and a sub-chief and the sub-chief's wife that are included in the narrative that show how, yes, one of them was involved in the attacks and the other one was not, but they show how ultimately it's very, um, it's not personal. No one intended to hurt or kill humans at all. It was just an intent to stop travel onto their treaty-protected land. It was an intent to send a message to say, please stay on the designated trail. However, the situation completely blew up. And, of course, the immigrants are going to fight back. And so I don't think that was bargained for, if you know what I mean. And so the punishment that came after that was so biased and so specific, aimed at one specific individual in one of the tribal nations that literally was not even there, was not even in that area at all for the entire duration of these attacks. And yet they just decided she must be the guy. And so I do point that out. I show how that dynamic really sours how we perceive what the military did and how they just sort of, again, make up the rules or make up their own sense of justice at that time without confession or um, evidence of a crime. And so I think that readers will see that. And I think it's not an easy truth to see. Just like if we're to go back towards World War II and we talk about the prison camps or as folks like to call them incarceration camps or concentration camps or however else you want to euphemize that, but it's difficult to acknowledge even today 
that the Americans did such a vile thing to a marginalized community. And I think the same discomfort will be there. When folks read the book, they're going to get a sliver. And that, I mean, really, just one sliver. Three voices that I was able to find written documentation on where they were completely distrusted, abused, mistreated in a way that is, there's no excuse for. There's no explaining it away. There's no reconciling it. And there really is no reconciling. There's no apology ever made. There's no restitution made. There's no acknowledgement made for how they mistreated the Plains Indians who either were or were not even involved. And so, yes, readers will have to, I think, confront those biases and those preconceived notions. And they're going to see who, who really needs to be held accountable. Were you surprised by anything you found in your own family history? I was absolutely surprised and delighted when I pulled on the thread of the New York train that showed up in my third great-grandmother's trail diary. Her name is Sarah Rousseau, and she was coming from Iowa. And she had made allusions to this New York train. They had come through the same area in Iowa. They had seen each other on multiple occasions, but she refused to use their name, which I thought was interesting. So as I was able to merge the accounts together and overlay who was where at every single point of the day, really, I found that the New York train was actually the refugee family of pre-Civil War abolitionist John Brown. And they had done their absolute best to remain anonymous. It was essential that no one found out who they were because even though they weren't necessarily, there's a debate on that, involved in the massacres in Kansas or the Harpersbury siege in West Virginia or Virginia back then, they still had targets on their back as political, um, I guess, martyrs. And they needed to be punished for supporting John Brown, for helping to conceal what he was doing. So Southern sympathizers who were on the trail got wind that they were also on the trail and they were hunting them down with plans to assassinate them. So it was very, very important that the Browns remained concealed. And one family was very close to them and names them constantly. They're always doing things with the Browns and they're very friendly and familiar to each other. So once they were with the Pella company, who my ancestors were with, it was so obvious that the Browns were the New York train. And I love that my third great grandmother had even in her diary, you know, who's going to read this diary? I don't know if she's thinking she's going to ever have it published, but even in her diary, she protected them and she concealed their identity. And I appreciate that. I mean, it made it a harder thing for me to dig up later. It made it a more, challenging discovery, but 
I love that she was part of the people who protected them from that potential disaster. That's amazing. I can't imagine reading my great-great-grandmother's diary. I don't know how many greats were in there. (laughs) I think that would just be so, so intimate and little peek into their world. How was that for you? Again, you have to confront some of those opinions when you're reading someone's diary. I think they don't want or expect anyone to read it later. And so we do see some judgment. We do see issues that are undesirable, opinions about people that are undesirable. Actually, she had some pretty strong opinions about then Mormon President Brigham Young when she ended up in in, uh, Utah, and she calls him fat. And so I just kind of get a kick out of that because at this time, these are ideas and words that women cannot speak out loud. They cannot have publicly published or known that they have these very strong thoughts or opinions about the world around them. So she put it all in her diary and there is no filter. So for me to read that and go, oh, Granny, you can't use those words now. Or Granny, that was a little harsh. Or however it might be. But I did find some moments in there where she truly, I would call her a feminist. Because when she saw women who were in need, women who perhaps they found themselves pregnant without a spouse, or they found themselves struggling with their sense of identity or perhaps even sexuality, although she alludes to it but doesn't use those words, she is so fair and just and kind and accepting. And that also would have been radical back then. So the way she describes women only ever uplifts them, encourages them, and preserves their story as wholesome and healthy. And no matter what choices they make, she's going to support the woman behind those choices. And so I do enjoy getting to know her. I guess she'd be the earliest feminist in my family that I know of. That is so cool. When can people get their hands on this? The books are currently on Amazon in ebook, and as of January 6th, the paperbacks are available. However, the paperbacks are available um, for distributors and retailers right now. And I am thrilled that I could actually, through the edits, reduce the price a little bit to make it easier. But it is a huge book, it is almost 600 pages. So it is pretty hefty, so there is that in the price consideration, but uh, it is worth it. You will go on an adventure, not just a journey. You're going to go on an adventure. You're going to soak up the magic of the West. You're going to see and have your heart pound when you get into those tight, squeezy moments in there, and you're going to either cheer for, you might even cry when you see the outcomes. And so I really feel like this is going to be an enjoyable reading experience, even if you're not interested in the Civil War. This is enjoyable 
especially for women, because I make sure that women's voices are prominent in the narrative. And this is enjoyable for those who love the Western literature. But beyond that, it's, it's a fun read. I mean, it's an exciting read. It doesn't read like an academic nonfiction at all. It reads like this is a fictional, you know, impossible situation. But the reality is, it wasn't. It was real. And so that's going to hit the readers really hard. So I hope they enjoy it. I can't wait to read the reviews. This has been Report to Wyoming, presented in the public interest by Town Square Media.